Our New Testament reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting anyone's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. We're running a bit short on time, uh, so I'm going to talk kind of quickly and skip the preamble uh, and intro, and let me just pray for us as we get started. Father, I pray that you would um, enlighten us, that you would show us what you want us to see, that you would move towards us wherever we're coming from, whether it's strange for us to be in a church this morning or whether this is our place that we're accustomed to. Each and every Sunday, I pray that you would enable us to follow the truth wherever it leads, that you would enable us to take a step toward you as you have stepped toward us in the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, As many of you know, David Brooks is a writer for the New York Times, and he's almost always uh, worth reading. I don't always see things exactly the same way, but I always uh, learn something from him. And he wrote this really interesting op-ed column uh, last year on the late career of Ernest Hemingway and how he became in his later years a prisoner to his own celebrity. And Hemingway was a, a famous writer very early in his career by age 25. And by middle age, what David Brooks observes is he was more or less playing Ernest Hemingway. And most of us would, of course, love to be so lucky, right, that be nice to be a prisoner of our successes and our achievements instead of our demons, uh, though Hemingway had plenty of those. But Brooks isn't talking here necessarily only about fame or accomplishments. He's talking about what we in the church would call works righteousness, that becoming righteous or noteworthy or well-regarded in light of one's work can be as condemning as other failure. If you're in the business of determining your own worth by your good work, 
by your excellence, by your accomplishments, in whatever arena you were doing this, sooner or later you become, and we all become, a prisoner to it. We become mummified to our success and therefore our failure as well. And the way that Brooks describes it, this is what happened, happened to Hemingway. And yet still, he was able later in his life to write some of his more notable novels, For Whom the Bell Tolls and The Old Man in the Sea. And his Brooks notes that his ability to do this, that is Hemingway's, amidst all of the pressure and fakery and the sycophants who wanted to hang on to his coattails, it was dependent upon what Brooks says Hemingway in Hemingway's life was getting to zero getting to zero in some real and in some tangible way in his own mind. He wanted to become that person who hadn't achieved this great success, who didn't have all of the accolades in this great writing career. He wanted to get back to zero in his own mind, to write like he did before. In order to connect whatever gift he had, he needed to do some digging, some soul-searching, some deconstructing of who Ernest Hemingway was. That in buckets of alcohol, but that's another story for a later sermon. But this idea of getting to zero is true for our work, whether it's vocational or whether it's spiritual and in our relationships and anything else that gets overlaid with this self-commentary and self-awareness of who we are and who we've become. And in the New Testament, and we've seen throughout Corinthians Uh, both of the letters, that Jesus' ministry seems to be constantly focused upon this sort of deconstruction, this reversal and exchange, saying, as he does over and over, my life for yours. There's this exchange that happens and therefore a reversal on our part. My life for yours. My love for your evil. And here in this passage, my righteousness for your brokenness, for your sin. And this is why this sort of reversal, this is why the so-called worsts in the Bible always seem to be predisposed to get Jesus' message and to respond positively rather than the bests. The bests can't be bothered, because, but those that are already at zero in some realm of life and some perception of themselves, they understand what Jesus is trying to do, while those with layers and layers of righteousness and the protective strategies that come along with them either reject him outright or they find elements of the spiritual journey to our spiritual life to keep doing the very thing they were doing to begin with to protect the ego and prop up their own achievements. And these people, and if we're honest, These are the people that stare back at us in the mirror each and every morning while we're brushing our our teeth, respect the cross, talk about the cross, theorize about the cross, but we don't let it take us to zero. We don't let it deconstruct us fully. Now, we'll talk about this more personally and practically in just a moment, but Paul tells us here that the cross that Jesus rides toward on Palm Sunday is the punctuation mark of this whole new way of being spiritual, reversal and exchange. The good guy becomes the bad guy. And the bad guy not only gets off scot-free, but inherits a fortune. That's that final verse 
that we looked at, that Eric read for us. Now, this is pretty easy to theorize and to find throughout the Bible, but the beauty really comes when we begin to internalize it, when we take that theory and we take that historic element and event of what Jesus did and begin to let it appropriate itself into our everyday life. The beauty comes when we get to witness the cross getting traction in our lives and we get to see these moments of personal reversal. And I don't mean only the the big stories of conversion that you often hear. I don't just mean people who are rescued out of rock-bottom moments in their life where they've hit zero, literally. But those everyday insights that if we're looking and if we're uh, interacting with the Bible and with worship, with confession, those everyday moments where the gospel is rehearsed mentally and we are brought to zero, if only for a moment, where we see all of our coping mechanisms and our self-righteous and our monuments to self that we have built for what they are. And in some way, they seem strange to us. We identify them. And we have this aha moment of gospel realization that we were made for something better than just moving through life, protecting ourselves and coping And that God is actually inviting us into a relationship where these strategies don't make sense anymore. Getting to zero, this process of seeing and identifying our deficits and noticing how fraudulent some of our strategies and some of our relationships are. Recognizing how petty that we have been, even towards those that we love the most that these things come to light as what they are in the gospel, in the reversal of Jesus. And it becomes then not a moment of shame and self-loathing, but a pathway into joy, a pathway out of shame and out of guilt and out of self-recrimination, into joy, into relationship, into intimacy with God Himself. Because that's what God is about. This exchange on the cross, Paul said beforehand, it was that Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself. That is inviting us into a restored, renewed relationship. Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And there is a one-time aspect of this, but it's not just one time. It's not the blinding light road to Damascus type of conversion moment, but it happens each and every time we mentally rehearse the gospel when it touches our hearts. It moves into our interior spaces. Every time basic Christianity 101 is preached, it upends and should upend our world. And all of the accounting systems that we've used to vet one another and vet our own project. Jesus reverses this on the cross. Now we've talked about a number of different theories of atonement. That is the doctrinal word of what God is actually accomplishing on the cross and how. But however we parse out the theological details and the mechanisms of atonement and what God is doing on the cross. What is happening 
on the cross is that God is reconciling the world to himself and not counting people's sins against them anymore. Full stop. That is what God is about. That is what Jesus was doing on the cross that we look forward to on Good Friday this week. This should stop us in our tracks if we really think about it. Is that how you think about God? Is that how you relate to Him? When you picture Him mentally, do you picture Him as inherently gracious and extending relationship to you and not counting your sins against you? If you don't, go back to Christianity 101. That's the very basics of the, of the gospel, the character of God expressed in the person, life, work, and death of Jesus. And that's a question for all of us to ask and answer, hopefully, this morning, whether we're looking for answers this morning. We're scoping out the church and seeing if maybe the church has the answers for our spiritual quest, or if this is our place and we've been a Christian as long as we can remember. That's our question for us. Is that how God is? Is that what He's really like on the cross, paying for all of our debt and all of our sin because He wants to, because He wants relationship with us? As we work to construct our own righteousness, our own standing before God and before others and with ourselves, Even in the midst of that strenuous, exhausting process, God reaches out to us and He says, stop, get off the treadmill, let me hold on to you. Let's ponder this for a moment because the God who, let's be honest, if He wanted to relate to us on a purely accounting basis, keeping a ledger of all the rights and wrongs that we've done and then awarding us based upon that, We could chafe at it. We could be mad at God and stomp our feet. But no one could say that God doesn't have the right to do that. As the creator and sovereign of the universe, he could certainly do that. And if he was like that, it would be perfectly recognizable because that's how we are oftentimes. We treat others based upon an accounting basis. We treat ourselves based upon the ledger. How am I doing How many entries did I make in the good column and how many entries did I make in the bad column? But instead, God chooses to take all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness and He grants us all of His life and His goodness and His mercy and His perfection. Instead of an accounting ledger, He gives us grace. He gives us His Son on the cross. If you're wondering, friends, that's what God is like. That's who God is. That's an expression of His character, who He is at the very basis of His personhood. Now, let me just make three comments here as we wind up and wrap up. Very practical and personal, okay? Notice that despite the title of the sermon, Becoming the Righteousness of God, there is a become, a became aspect to it. While there's obviously a progressive element to what we would call sanctification, that is becoming more like Jesus in the spiritual journey, there's a progressive element that we make progress, 
that we identify things and patterns in our lives and we begin to change or God changes us. There's obviously a progressive element, but there is something that is very final and is very established about the become in this passage. In other words, on the cross, Jesus became sin, and at that moment, we become righteousness if we are in Him. Past tense now. As this refers to us, it could be construed in in multiple ways or from multiple perspectives. One is subjective. The righteousness that God gives us, that is a righteous character. Secondly, it could be objective. That is the righteousness that we have before God. That is a right standing. That we are righteous legally before Him. And then there's thirdly, a possessive element. The righteousness that God possesses, His righteousness, we now share in because of the work of Jesus on the cross. He grants it to us and we share in that righteousness. And in Paul's writings, you can see all three of these understanding of the word uh, dikeosune, but here it seems to be more used of character, of the first, that it's not merely that we acquire a right standing before God or that we're simply given a share, a piece of God's righteousness. It's not just a legal fiction. That is something that is said about us but isn't really true. But in Christ, we truly assume His righteousness. We receive it as a gift, just as Jesus assumed our sin in that moment. And so secondly, or the second observation that hopefully is practical and personal is that if you are in Christ, you truly are righteous. And this is very important and hopefully a little bit scandalous for those of us that have been in the church. When I say you are indeed righteous because of the work of Jesus. And what this can do for us personally, practically, is that as sin creeps back in, as we begin to go back to those false gods and those false selves, as we're tempted to move back into that practice of spiritual accounting, we can tell ourselves truly that that is our old self. Paul goes so far in Romans 7 as to separate himself objectively from this practice of sin that he seems bound to do. Saying that when he sees sin in his life, it's not really him that's even doing it anymore. That's how far this transaction of sin and righteousness, this reversal, has taken root in his life that he's able to say, it's not even me who does it anymore. He is rooted in the righteousness of God so much that it is part of his old nature. And in a very real sense, sin as a part of his old nature is dead and buried and done. Paul is done with the accounting process, and we should be too. In reflection upon this verse, and I want to give just a little aside because it's been said, and I've heard this said, that because of the cross, when God looks upon you, he chooses to see Jesus instead. And this is certainly true to a point. His work pays for our sin. He redeems us from the penalty of sin because it's not our efforts at goodness to gain a relationship with God. That doesn't work. 
That's Christianity 101 as well. But it's his work of reconciliation that gets us in the door, that gets us relationship. But what often comes alongside this, almost unintentionally because we are very shame-focused and shame-oriented, is this false piety, and I would say false theology, that actually reasons that God cannot bear to look upon sin. I am sinful, therefore, he cannot bear to look upon me. And this is a, a negation, it's an annihilation of the self rather than what I think Paul is talking about. That is a rehabilitation and, in fact, a resurrection of the self. This other way of thinking would be Good Friday without Easter. This view of the exchange on the cross that Paul is talking about as a sort of, that we think of as sort of a legal fiction, doesn't deal with and subtly enhances shame. And it ends up saying that I, in my humanity, am repulsive to God. But thankfully, Jesus stands in between me and him and changes the optics. That is not the gospel. And I just want to be clear. That is not the reversal and exchange that Paul is talking about here. Listen to Thomas Merton, the great Catholic mystic. He says, to say I was born in sin is to say I came into the world with a false self. I was born in a mask. I came into existence under a sign of contradiction, being someone that I was never intended to be, and therefore a denial of what I was supposed to be. Deconstruction, getting to zero, is peeling back all of those layers of the false selves and the false ways we have lived, those false sinful layers that have hardened on top of our true selves, all of those patterns of self-righteousness that have blurred not only our relationship with God, but blurred our sense of self and who we were made to be. You see, friends, what God wants to get rid of isn't you. What God wants to get rid of is dishonest you. What God wants to get rid of is evasive you and evasive me. The you that claims to be okay apart from the gospel. Because when we're in that place of falsehood, it prevents us from truly experiencing this life-giving relationship of love that God offers and being intimate with Him, just as it does our everyday relationships. God looks upon you now, if you are in Christ, God looks upon you and He sees you as righteous. He has granted that standing to you. He has given it to you in your being. And therefore, we can say, as we've said in previous weeks, that the story of the gospel isn't primarily about crime and punishment, but about sickness and healing and resurrection. It's not something that takes place primarily in the courtroom, but in the hospital. Where we are encountering, encountering Jesus, and He's restoring us to our true selves. Now, third and final, and very quickly we get new life, not just new standing. New life, not just new standing. The wife of a friend of mine was driving with her two-year-old son, and she picked up her phone and said, Siri, 
texts Josh to get milk. Josh is her husband. And without missing a beat from his car seat in the back, her son said, Siri, text Josh to get chocolate milk. We have to recognize that we don't want skim milk from life. We want chocolate milk and not the 1% kind. We want the whole milk, chocolate milk. We want the dessert. And that's actually a good thing. We're told in Christian circles oftentimes to deny our desires, deny ourselves. And there's an aspect of that that is very gospel-centered when we are doing it on behalf of someone else. We give up our own rights. But there's a part of it that's not so healthy. And C.S. Lewis says it's not that God finds our desires too strong, but too weak. The problem, friends, is that when we go about searching for beauty and love and delight and transcendence in ways that actually impoverishes us rather than fills us. That's the problem, is that we do that. When we confess our sins, as we did earlier, we're asking not for skim milk, but we're asking for chocolate milk, whole milk, because we're not asking simply that God would forgive us and wipe the slate clean. That's where the gospel stops in many Christian contexts. But that He would assure us of His love, that He would fill us with His Spirit, that He would empower us to walk in newness of life, that we would walk the resurrected life, not just with a clean slate, but with righteousness. None of us, friends, because of this, are mummified by our successes or by our failures. They don't define you. But on the cross, Jesus defined you. And He defined you as beloved, as worthy, as righteous. So let's live out of that this week. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that You would indeed empower us, that You would change us, that You would make us to be more and more of the person that You want us to be and that we would leave behind all of those ways that we have lived out of falsehood and out of self-protection and all of the masks that we wear, that they would come down, particularly here in this church that says we believe the gospel and that we're not defined by our successes and failures. And I pray that if there are those among us who are still wrestling with the basic contours of Christianity, uh, with the faith, we pray that you would move into their lives and that they would find a radically safe seat here in town, that they could continue to explore what it means to know you and to be known by you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.